Detroit Today on 1019 WDT. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad that you're with us. We're going to talk the rest of the hour about the latest piece in Chapter 2 of the Atlantic Magazine's Inheritance Series, which explores black history in the spaces and places where memories live. I'm joined by Caleb Gale, who is a New America Fellow, and whose piece, The Neighborhood Fighting Not to Be Forgotten, is one of the newest installments in this Inheritance Series. The article details the fight to preserve and commemorate Greenwood, which was the site of the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre, formerly known as Black Wall Street. And Gale looks at how the designation of historic preservation would protect both the past and the present in black neighborhoods. It is a really fascinating piece, and I am really excited to welcome Caleb Gale to Detroit today. Great to have you here. Thanks much, Steve. I really appreciate it. Okay. So uh, let's start with you talking. I want to go back just a little bit because uh, the Tulsa Race Massacre, Greenwood, Black Wall Street, I think these are uh, pieces of American history and pieces of black history that were long kind of uh, forgotten, uh, not just kind of, but but maybe even explicitly forgotten uh, and intentionally in some cases. But they are getting a little more attention now. I, I, I still think, though, that there are a lot of people who don't really know very much about that. So I, I want to start with you just uh, recounting what happened in 1921 and uh, why it was so significant. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think even to examine some of my own like personal history being you know a, a, a transplant to, to Oklahoma in, in 1997 with my family uh, we had no clue right um, and it wasn't taught in schools so a lot of my learning which we can talk about has not so much been very recent but recent in comparison with how long ago this tragedy happened um, so you know the the, the Tulsa race massacre, effectively um, started uh, with the events on May 30th of 1921, when a 19-year-old Black man named Dick Rowland was in an elevator in downtown Tulsa with Sarah Page, who was the elevator operator, a white woman at around 17 years old. Um, And during that time, we don't know what happened, uh, uh, but a clerk um, in a store in that building, the Drexel building, reported the incident as an attempted assault, which reified um, in the minds of a lot of people um, all of the worst stereotypes, false though they may be, of Black men um, engaging with white women. And uh, that set off a chain of events that resulted in the, the Tulsa Tribune carrying a headline that said nab Negro for attacking girl in elevator. Sarah Page never pressed charges. She denied anything bad ever happened. Um, but what then happened after was that um, the, the wider portion of the city, which uh, was the majority of the city and, and sat outside of what was kind of the Northeastern portion of the city um, from downtown to South Tulsa to Midtown, uh, kind of engaged in a, in, a, in a violent attack. Of course, I'm skipping over a lot of the details, but it laid waste to what was once um, not necessarily this bastion of Black wealth, but a bastion of Black opportunity, right? The opportunity to succeed and fail felt almost 
akin to one another, um, equal to one another. Whereas even if you go to parts of what was formerly Black Tulsa or Black Wall Street or more formally Greenwood today, um, the, the disparity amongst the entrenched nature of the disparity between Black life in Tulsa versus white folks is, is, is quite stark. So much so that the uh, one of the zip codes that encompasses the former Black Wall Street um, has a life expectancy on average about nine years less than the rest of the county, right? Hmm. So uh, what was once there were, you know, over 191 businesses and stores. Uh, and the main person in my piece, Brenda Nails Alford, uh, her family was one of those incredibly successful families that seized opportunity because opportunity was there for them. So that, that's effectively what happened on those two days. And then what ensued was a campaign of silence um, that was quite successful. Yeah, yeah. So, so talk about how today and the people that you are writing about in this, in this article, um, how this story intersects with the narrative around preservation and development and opportunity uh, in modern America. Sure. You know, so Brenda Nails Alford has a much longer history in Tulsa than I do. She's, you know, 30 plus years older than I am and uh, has been in Tulsa all of her life, went to high school, elementary, college, all in Tulsa, um, and has, you know, worked for, for years at a a vocational school in in what was formerly considered parts of Black Tulsa. Um, and she had no earthly clue um, about this story, this narrative that her family told her, not just because of the kind of campaign of silence um, to ensure that Black, that, that Tulsa did not dissuade the excited and interesting or interested parties from the East Coast and wherever else to want to move there to take advantage of the booming oil industry. Um, but primarily also because nothing looked like what it once looked like, right? I think the story is, is that, you know, come the 1940s, Black Wall Street had rebounded more significantly than it had um, before. Um, it, it, the level of success was more significant. The amount of businesses were more robust. Um, uh, and that was the era and time in which kind of Brenda and her family, uh, the 40s, 50s, 60s, really were kind of teeming with success. But what ended up happening, especially starting in Tulsa in 1959, um, was that a program called Urban Renewal, which Brenda always would correct me during my interviews with her and call it removal. <laughs> right, um, right. <laughs> uh, essentially empowered the city to leverage tactics of eminent domain to determine what areas were blighted and what areas needed to be cleared, which across the country displaced 300,000 people. But even in Tulsa, you know, if you look at some of the districts, a lot of them being in, in, in former Black Wall Street and around it, Black people were, Black families were, were, were losing their homes and being displaced at a higher rate than others. I think it was at 76% in certain districts of Tulsa. Uh, so what has happened then is that the elements that were once Black Wall Street or the revived Black Wall Street um, ceased to exist. It made way for a highway um, that I have driven on many times 
um, but did not realize kind of the death sentence that that highway had on the continuity of that that neighborhood. So when, you know, Brenda years later thinks to herself, well, it's time for me to try and get my family's property recognized, um, given given all that it's been through, given that it's supposedly been there since 1925, she realizes even then that, you know, her home was uh, not the home that she thought it was, right? It was a home that was replaced by the urban renewal program. So all of this impedes any likelihood to get to your the last part of your question, it impedes any likelihood for her home and even more so the Greenwood neighborhood to be listed on something called the National Register of Historic Places. Um, and, and what it, it sounds pretty honorific and in many cases it can be, but the benefits that can accrue to neighborhoods or districts that become registered um, on the National Register of Historic Places are pretty significant, uh, mm -hmm. Stephen. So that's that's kind of how it how it has kind of intersected with today. And if you look at even other parts of Tulsa, which we can talk about, um, right around and abutting Black Wall Street, um, the success they've been able to have both on getting registered. And then even more so what that sort of registration then allowed them to do, the tax benefits they were allowed to accrue have been particularly significant. Yeah. Uh, I, I want you to talk a little more about that, uh, that historic designation and what it would mean in, in, some, in some practical terms. But before, before we get to that, uh, I, I just want to stop and note how chilling the similarities between what you are describing in Tulsa uh, are with what we've experienced right here in Detroit. Uh, mm. We had a neighborhood here called Black Bottom uh, and a mm. business district called Paradise Valley uh, yeah. that were also destroyed by urban removal uh, uh, and, and uh, you know bulldozed for 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 what they called progress, which uh, in some mm -hmm. cases was was middle-class housing development, but in more significant uh, fashion was made to make way for a, an expressway uh, that, that you know, sits right between downtown Detroit uh, and the east side of the city here. But, but that is the sort of, that freeway is the, the tomb, really, for mm. uh, those two neighborhoods and for, as you point out, for all of the opportunity that African-Americans had in those areas that they could not find uh, other places. So, so I want you to talk just a little about, and I know that uh, in the article you talk about how this is not unique to Tulsa. Uh, this is something that happened in cities all over America. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it did, right? And I think you, you bringing up Black Bottom and, and Paradise Valley are really kind of ways of, of redounding that point, right? That uh, it wasn't just Tulsa. I think Tulsa provides this almost, you know, sadly an end-to-end -end picture of it, right? Where it's, it's uh, as Brenda says, um, we've been destroyed twice, first by the massacre, then by renewal, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and kind of what that renewal then led to, which was significant disinvestment, significant amounts of white flight, um, as as the displacement reapportioned and reallocated homes in certain areas that then in some instances led to Wi-Fi. It almost felt like an extreme vicious cycle happening in real time. Um, and she can even recall 
um, like many people across the country can recall, people really trying their best to hold on to that history, right? I think it was the term that she used or the phrase that she used. And the way in which they did that in some instances was to not let go of their homes, right? To try their best to fight and push back against um, city officials who were hoping to, to clear that space for what they purported to be progress. But because they knew both in Tulsa and other places that inherent oftentimes in these policies is a certain level of race blindness or supposed race blindness mm -hmm. that oftentimes blinds them from the sort of disparate racial impacts and outcomes that this can have, yeah. right? So it's, it's, it's definitely not unique to Tulsa. I just think that what's great or really you know, great from a reporting perspective, but devastating from a real life perspective, especially for someone like Brenda, is that she's kind of watching her history fade. She feels the need to hold that history on behalf of not just her family, but a host of residents in that community and a host of people around the country who've also experienced similar devastation. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with uh, Caleb Gale, a New America fellow who has written a piece in The Atlantic titled The Neighborhood Fighting Not to Be Forgotten. Uh, we are talking about uh, this idea of forgotten places and how they struggle even in the modern time to recapture some of the opportunity and good fortune that they may have had in the past, sometimes through historic preservation. We're going to want to hear from you when we get back as well. Can you think of examples of that here in Detroit? I just talked about one. Are there others? And what is the relationship between historic preservation and economic opportunity in distressed parts of our community? 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter, put comments there, and we'll try to include you. Stay right where you are. We'll be back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Caleb Gale a New America fellow who has a new piece in The Atlantic titled The Neighborhood Fighting Not to Be Forgotten. And we're talking about uh, this idea of forgotten places and how they become rediscovered, reinvested in, uh, sometimes through historic preservation. Uh, again, we want to hear from you. Uh, what do you think about uh, forgotten places here in southeast Michigan, how we might reclaim some of those, how we might revitalize some of those places. Uh, also, give us a call and let us know if you live in a community that you think uh, needs reinvestment and what you'd like to see in terms of reinvestment uh, in, in that place. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter, and uh, we'll try to work you into the conversation that way. Um, before we get to our listeners, uh, Caleb, I want to talk just a little bit about the specific ways that in Tulsa, this, uh, this National Register of Historic Places could make a difference by recognizing uh, this neighborhood, and then talk about why it's been so hard to get that recognition. Sure. You know, when I when I left Tulsa to go to college, 
um, quite a while ago, Tulsa's downtown and everything surrounding it was kind of dead. It was hollowed out and I, I, we weren't allowed to go there, not because it was dangerous, but because there was nothing happening. Um, and when I returned to Tulsa to sometimes visit family, decade, a decade or and a half later or so, I noticed that Tulsa had been revitalized and I, I wondered why. Um, and so in Tulsa, a lot of the communities near or abutting um, from Black Wall Street, the Brady District, which is now called the Arts District, um, Deco, uh, Blue Dome, so on and so forth, had these historical markers which had been maintained very carefully for a long time. The Brady District, now Arts District, has like Brady Theater. Um, Blue Dome has a Blue Dome in the middle of it. Um, and they had not been nearly as devastatingly affected or displaced. They had business leaders who, um, businesses and business leaders that had been invested in and had really spent a lot of their time doing all they could to maintain the integrity and significance of their communities. And so as such, you know, if you get to be on the historic, on the register for National Register for Historic Places, it then allows you to take advantage of something called the historic tax credit, right, which um, is a 20% tax credit that's meant for the rehabilitation and upkeep of, upkeep of historical buildings. Mm -hmm. And you can't get that tax credit unless you're on the National Register of Historic Places. It's a stage gating mechanism that has really, to some extent, unlocked significant investment in places like Tulsa. Um, you know, in, in 2018 alone, over a thousand of these projects were approved that led to about $6.9 billion in, in development, rehabilitation, upkeep of historical buildings around, around the country. So in, in Oklahoma, it's, it's an even greater gain because the state has kind of aligned their historic tax credit program with the federal government. So it's really kind of getting 20% two times in terms of tax credit, which really incentivizes developers to do things in those communities. And as such, Tulsa has been incredibly transformed, right? I mean, the arts district is, is kind of a shining uh, example of, uh, try, of, of talent recruitment and reinvigorating a downtown that was once dead and is very much alive now. But what's, what's really sad is that, quite frankly, a lot of these you know, historic sites, historic places that are then registered um, are are oftentimes not that reflective of, of you know, underrepresented groups, mm -hmm. specifically Black groups, right? Black identity is not necessarily exemplified. When I talked to Brent Legs, he mentioned that, you know, of the 100,000 or so entries, there are only about 2% that were chosen because they reflect Black identity. And it's in part because Black life in America has in very much in real and physical ways been been tampered with or inhibited in their ability to be maintained and grown. So that's really kind of the picture. That's what Black Wall Street, this former hub of opportunity for Black life, has really been to some extent in a very physical way hollowed out. Yeah, yeah. As always, 313 577-1019 is the number here on the phones. We've got a lot of folks who want to talk about this subject. Let's start with Adrian in Detroit. Adrian, welcome to the show. Well, good morning. The topic is great. And I told your screener that there's something else I wanted to say, but I believe my most important comment would be this. I went to CAF 
And I remember how vibrant downtown Detroit was. Mm -hmm. Do you remember there was nothing living or walking in downtown Detroit in the 90s but Mm -hmm. pigeons? So I am glad to see downtown Detroit come back. It took a while, but I'm glad. And I'm also a baby boomer. I didn't see any black businesses until I until I think around the 70s. And I would always compare them with the white ones. And I and I told your screener, you should not compare a business if the owner is black or white. But what type of service they give you, Hmm. you know, and I, I think that's the bottom line. You can be black. You can be white. You must treat your customers like. Like they're the most important thing that walks through your doors. <laughs> yeah. That's all. That's no. my comment. That's great. That's great advice for uh, for business owners, uh, Adrian. Uh, thanks very much for for calling and sharing that. Let's go to Jim in Detroit. Jim, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you, Stephen? Uh, Good. Glad to be a part of the show. But uh, I've been a part of uh, Preservation Wayne, which is now Preservation Detroit, mm-hmm. uh, for a number of years, and. Uh, the preservation and the utilization of preservation tax credits has always been a viable tool for distressed community. Over the years, I've had the opportunity to uh, gain significant income through doing wood and steel window restoration, which I would not have had uh, without tax credit benefits in some communities. And I've traveled the country and providing that service and doing restoration. Since we are at a point now that the skilled trades is at such a low point uh, of employ not employment opportunity, but employees mm-hmm. to be trained, the training of skilled trades people in and around Detroit or distressed communities is a key thing, and preservation and the adaptive reuse or the restoration of existing buildings throughout Detroit is a major vehicle that could put a restoration economy in full force in Detroit. In thinking that and giving that, those tax credits benefit, um, probably can benefit most distressed communities more by providing job opportunities. Right. Uh, Jim, I I really appreciate the call and the thoughts. Uh, Caleb Gale, I want to get you to react to what Jim's talking about. Yeah, I... I can I can definitely relate and both understand. I think that there's, you know, to his initial point, right? There's there's such significant opportunity to do some of this. I think what's interesting even more so is, you know, the the fact that we probably need to deploy more kind of human capital to to some of these communities to ensure that they can, you know, put together more creative nominations for the National Register of Historic Places, right, which then um, takes into account not just what once was there, but then also the change that's happened to a lot of the extant resources that are in those communities. Um, and so I think, you know, to some extent, it seems as if the call was mentioning, really, we, we need probably a little bit more innovation and reform to the process whereby um, communities, especially communities of color that have been um, so significantly distressed, sometimes intentionally, mm-hmm. oftentimes intentionally, uh, they, there needs to be more human capital deployed to ensure that um, we can have sort of innovative nomination process um, that will ensure their registration in the future. Yeah. Um, of course, then enables a lot of potential economic opportunity to those those communities as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jim, again, thanks very much for the call and the really provocative 
ideas. Um, I, I want to go to Richard in Detroit, who I think also has a really provocative question. Richard, welcome to the show. Yes, good morning to both of you. Mm-hmm. I wanted to, I like the idea of historical resurrection, resurrection and tax credits and all of that, but I think it's got to go much further than that. I think that people in these areas need to file uh, sort of reparations, resurrection, lawsuits against their cities and states that took peace in the destruction of the community. Hmm. Um, they need to press to set a fund that will both uh, make whole any descendants, direct descendants of those who lived in these areas and who were disadvantaged, um, but the other half of the fund should be set up to further uh, black business opportunity. Right, in these, in these areas, right. yeah. Richard, these Richard, areas. I, I think that's a really interesting point. I'm glad you called, uh, made it. Caleb Gale, there is finally real conversation about reparations and what it might look like. You've seen some cities uh, in, in our country take it upon themselves to try to fashion uh, reparations of some sorts. Uh, Talk about whether that's part of the narrative in in Tulsa, uh, the, the idea of repairing what got broken in 1921. Yeah, no, yeah, getting restitution and uh, you know through through direct payment to descendants of descendants, and in the case of Tulsa, where there are still three remaining survivors of um, uh, of the Tulsa race massacre has become more a topic of conversation to some extent that has, in some instances, split uh, viewpoints within the Black community, right? It almost goes to the point that we're, we're not a monolith. And even defining what exactly reparations will look like, be they direct payments in places like Asheville and Evanston, um, where it's more been more so for the promotion of business opportunity and development in some of these areas, whereas there are some some activists within Tulsa who are actively working and organizing today um, to craft pathways for you know restitution in those communities, and they even have a lawsuit currently on the books that's leveraging a, a pretty innovative and novel strategy using something called public nuisance as a, as a legal principle, the same principle that ensured that Johnson & Johnson had to pay the $465 million back for um, opioid, opioid crisis in places like Oklahoma. Um, they're using something similar, right, where it's not just one incident that ha- might have some sort of statute of limitations, but that over time this has caused for the public an ongoing nuisance, which is limited opportunity significantly. So that is happening now. Yeah. Okay. Uh, The piece is The Neighborhood Fighting Not to Be Forgotten. It is in the current issue of The Atlantic Magazine, and the author is Caleb Gale. Caleb, it was really great to have you here with us. Thanks so much for joining. Thank you. Okay, that is going to do it for us this week. I will be back on Monday, and I hope you will too. We're going to talk with uh, we're going to have a conversation about the big news around Enbridge Line 3. Also want to thank our senior intern, Nora Ryan, for her help in producing and building out today's show. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversations.